Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to the New Books in Theater podcast. This podcast offers interviews with authors of books about theater history, theater theory, and about prominent and influential dramatists. I'm your host, Matt Freeman. Our first interview will be with Pamela Cobrin, the author of From Winning the Vote to Directing on Broadway, The Emergence of Women on the New York Stage from 1880 to 1927. Hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the New Books in Theater podcast. New Books in Theater offers interviews with the authors of new books about theater history, uh, theory, and influential dramatists. And with us today is Pamela Cobrin. Her book is entitled From Winning the Vote to Directing on Broadway, The Emergence of Women on the New York Stage from 1880 to 1927. Hi, how you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. Great, great. Um, pleased to meet you. Um, uh, so I, I'd love it if you would just uh, introduce the audience to yourself a little bit and tell us your background and, and where you're at. I am, uh, by training, I guess, a feminist theater historian who focuses in on American theater history. So I am specifically interested in how staging public presence had a direct influence on the social and political climate. In the book that uh, we're talking about today, that is, I'm looking at that as it intersects with uh, the women's suffragist movement specifically, although I don't only look at suffragist productions. Professionally, I am at Barnard College, where I teach for the English department. I'm actually a faculty member of the English department, a senior lecturer, and I also teach for the theater department, American studies department, Africana studies department, and women's studies. Yes, yes. And I'm also, my other official title there is I direct the writing and speaking programs at Barnard College. Wow. So, you know, just a few things. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's great. And so what inspired you to, uh, so I guess, uh, would you view yourself as primarily a theater historian? Yes. Or is that just one of the many hats? No, I'm primarily a theater historian, although professionally I do other things. Um, much, Much of what I'm interested in is the ways in which, again, people present themselves, and I'm interested in this through a theatrical lens, Mm-hmm. how that impacts the identity of the person doing the performing, how that affects the audience and the ripple effect outward. Yeah, I mean, that's one thing. Uh, I, obviously, we'll, we'll get uh, more into the text, but one thing I, I really uh, loved about the book is how broadly you define the term performance and how you use it in many different ways about the performance of being a woman and and also enacting um, different sort of roles on the stage as a as performance in the very literal, maybe regular theatrical sense, but also as uh, you know, being a woman uh, director on Broadway as a as a as performing a certain kind of role in public in right. the society. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff. Um, so, uh, what inspired you specifically to write this book? Why focus on this uh, specific swath of American theater history? I I had started by actually wanting to write about the Gamut Club, which is, ends up being, believe it or not, the smallest chapter in the entire book, <laughs> the second chapter. And as I was researching into the Gamut Club, which is this women's theater club started by this commercial actress named Mary Shaw, who mm-hmm. was also a suffragist, as I was trying to figure out more and more about the Gamma Club, of which there's very, very little written, I kept running into these other spaces of things happening. So Mary Shaw was the catalyst, I guess, for where this all started. She happened to have been a commercial actress. She also did some directing. She was a suffragist. She marched in parades. And so she almost took me by the hand to all these different places. And I realized that the 
what I was interested in wasn't just about this one theater club or even this one woman, but rather all these intersecting places that were happening. As mm. I say in the book, every time a woman stepped out into the public eye, considering that she didn't have the right to vote, that she really didn't have a right to a very specific kind of public voice that men had access to, she yeah. was performing something that went against popular culture. Um, so, so that's how I started. So from there, I started thinking about the continuum of the ways in which women entered into public space and in ways that created fissures in mm -hmm. the political climate. And so that's that's the overarching. That's actually the overarching. Uh, organization of the chapters. They start from the most obvious places, the suffragist parades where you have women who are stepping out in public for very obvious purposes to, in order to create a statement about who they want to be in public, to the least obvious place, to commercial directors who actually prefer to be behind the scenes and not seen at all, and yet against their will they became these incredibly public figures because of the way they were stepping out into male Territory. Absolutely. No, so, yeah, absolutely uh, intriguing to watch the the relationship between, um, not you know, how it's not only uh, what the, the, the artistic product is, but just the behavior of women in the public sphere. Exactly, and yeah. the behavior of those who had to respond to them. Absolutely. Um, one thing I think is really interesting as we go uh, through the book a little bit is you start off... Uh, with the, the suffragist parades, um, which I thought was just an interesting place to begin because I think um, it really does sort of go right to the heart of how you um, speak about uh, performance broadly because a parade obviously is a performance. And uh, I really uh, thought it was interesting how um, the parades were a bigger draw than the rallies. Mm -hmm. How those overt political speech didn't seem to uh, register as much as the theatrical speech, um, but I, I, it's, I think it's pretty rare to sort of include parades in the theatrical spectrum. What what uh, brought your uh, gaze over to the uh, suffragist parades? What originally brought my gaze over to the suffragist parades was actually someone I worked with when I was um, when I was working towards my PhD, Brooke McNamara, who writes a lot about parades, although he doesn't write about suffragist parades at all, and mm -hmm. writes about public uh, public celebrations. And so he had helped me set up a framework for thinking about parades in this way. And then when I started doing this work, the parades were a very, very obvious place to go. Even, I mean, we can, I think of them as performance, and I try to, I hope I make a convincing argument in my book that why they should be included in this way. Um, but it, even if you look at the way they were set up from, from 1908, when the first real fledgling attempt at a parade was started to where they ended up, where they looked more like Broadway productions than they did like what we might traditionally think about parades with music and bands and actresses and spectacles. Actresses, yeah. were, actresses were very involved from the beginning, and uh, the idea of framing these things as a theatrical production because women saw themselves as being most effective when they were able to draw on the emotional cords of their audience. Um, Harriet Stanton Blatchard, who organized parades, had said, we must convince them through their eyes and their minds. Right. So there uh, was from the beginning an understanding that in order to move people in logical, intellectual ways about the political status of women, they had to see women through an emotional lens. And mm -hmm. theater is, is structured much along those same lines. Um, yeah, absolutely true. I I I, uh, I sort of chuckled when I was reading uh, how uh, the press w began to seem to expect a great final number yes. for the parades. They were looking forward to the the fun parades, even though these were overtly political acts. Yes, they became sort of embraced as as um, fun for people. They looked forward to them. I, it, it's sort of uh, a parallel to the gay pride parades now. Yes, yes, mm-hmm, absolutely. And they were described that way as well. They were described in very theatrical terms because of the 
where they were stationed, also because that was the language that was available for people to talk about the way in which women could gather in public together. Right. In a powerful right. and meaningful way. Well, it was so transgressive, but it, uh, you do. I loved how you you made the point that um, uh, uh, that it's shocking once, and then next year it's just what they do. You know right. that the, the the act of of going into the public square like this and and parading uh, was. They had to sort of keep shifting in order to uh, capture the public eye because the shock value wears off right away. Yes, yes. And in the beginning, what was shocking was just women stepping outside together to march for something. By the end, they were moving towards a, a, a kind of shock value that was actually very status quo. The shock value was, look how beautiful and spectacular suffragists can look. Yeah. Oh, I love just like the girl next door and the movie star. And that was the shock value. So also, what was underneath what was shocking was fascinating to watch. It really traces... Um, it traces performatively the the movement of the suffragist movement. It, I, I was. Uh, I, it's one of those. Uh, the more things change uh, um, categories where um, they were criticized for being too um, not feminine enough, and then they were criticized for being uh, too uh, pretty. Yes. There was yes. a sort of no way to be in the public square without criticism. That's exactly right. Well, in the end, they were criticized for things that actually looked much more like what actresses were criticized of. Mm -hmm. That they were unfairly manipulating an audience through their own um, availability or visual availability. Right. In a sexualized way. Yeah, by not, um, by not, uh, it's uh, very Victorian. Yes. Mm -hmm. yes, it's really fascinating. Um, so let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the Gamut Club, which is what, where you take us next in the book. Um, and you said it was the sort of impetus for you uh, delving into the subject. And I, I'd love for you to let the audience know a little bit. I, it's a very uh, little known. I had never heard of it. Um, very little known um, uh, part of theatrical history, it seems. Um, so I'd love for you to give us a, a bit of an overview. The Gamma Club was what we could now call a feminist drama club. At the time, it was a theater club for women, a place where uh, where women could go and find support and camaraderie. What Mary Shaw does to the idea of the theater club, and there were many of these established, the Charlotte Cushman Club was another very big one, where actresses could find support. In, in a field where there really wasn't through what we might call an old girls network, which there really wasn't. Huh. Yeah, sure. Ma Mary Shaw takes us to a new level and says, you know what, we can do more with these clubs. She's actually a part of a larger club and breaks off from it to form this because she wants something with more more intellectual and political oomph than what mm -hmm. a lot of the other clubs had. And she sees this as rallying around the idea that women have a voice that's important and that together they can make this, they can use a club in order to forward a more substantial agenda or what she saw as a more substantial agenda. So she had a somewhat open-door policy, which was that any woman could join this club as long as they were trying to do something meaningful with their lives, either professionally or intellectually. So right. even if they were just thinking about these things, that was enough. I say somewhat because, of course, racism and classism underlined everything going on at the time. So Yeah, I definitely it, wanted to, to say I really uh, appreciated how you uh, made sure that that there was a an understanding that class was a major factor in these in these um, and race were a major factor in who had the ability to join these clubs or engage in these theatricals. Yes, yes, a along with all the other things that come along with that xenophobia with the neighborhood playhouse. That there's there's really a feeling of we want to do something progressive and new, but we want to do it with the people that we recognize as most comfortable and and recognizable in the public sphere. Um, so that classes of women, nationalities of women, and races of women were excluded from these endeavors. So interesting. 
Yeah, I mean, it, because, you know, I, I always find it sort of fascinating that, um, that uh, you know, it's it's the forest for the trees. You can't, obviously, they're, they're fighting against a certain kind of social injustice, but uh, a, another kind is just not on the radar. Yes. Yeah, yes. it's just not on their list. <laughs> exactly. Or maybe it is and they don't see it, you know. Well, the suffragist movement had a, a very, very uncomfortable relationship with issues around race, even more so than they did with class, which they also had an uncomfortable relationship with. Um, but the Gamma Club also, Mary Shaw saw this as something where they could, it could be almost like a laboratory where they could experiment with different forms of drama and different forms of social interaction that could serve as both a model for others, but also serve as a, as a place to practice behaviors that could then be taken out of the clubhouse. Okay. So they, they put on lots of suffragists, one act. Mary Shaw wrote a few of them, and then tried to take them out into the public after they had been practiced. Yeah. It was a very collective, collaborative uh, endeavor, according to Mary Shaw, at least. Sure. Um, and they um, would, their social functions also functioned in the same way. So um, even down to small details, like when women came with their husbands, and there was also, I should say, a heteronormative imperative in all of this. Mm-hmm. That was completely expected. That sure. men would be introduced through their women, through their wives, I mean, through the women in their lives. So, oh, I so see, I see. So is this the husband of, the father of, as opposed to the way um, language usually positioned women as the possessive, the possession of. Right. It wouldn't be, uh, it would be Mr. Mary Shaw as opposed to Mrs. John Shaw or exactly. whatever. Exactly. Interesting. Interesting. Um, and and uh, so uh, tell me a little bit about uh, uh, what uh, a Mary Shaw play that you think is uh, a good example of the sort of work that you would do. That, that she did at the time? Yeah. Uh, in, in the Gamma Club, it, probably a good example would be she, she wrote two one-acts, one, very short one-acts, except for just one-acts, um, mm-hmm. one called The Parrot Cage and one called The Woman of It. And one was this symbolist play about five parrots who live in a cage and their wings have been clipped, but they're taken care of by this um, male owner who is a disembodied voice that continually comes in. And all they want to do is please him so they can be fed, even though none of them are happy. And they right. all have really we look at it now, somewhat really obvious character titles, and they have obvious dialogue. There's um, there's the religious one, there's the traditional one. I can't remember the exact names off the top of my head. But they all have names that refer to some aspect of what keeps women It was like the, um, the free-souled or free-spirited one. And the, right, and then the new I think parent, I'm remembering this. Yes. The new parrot who comes to the cage is named the Free Soul, and she hasn't had her wings clipped yet because she's brand new. And they're trying to instruct her and acclimate her to being a member of this club where they will be kept safe and fed hmm. by the master, but they will lose all freedom of independence. So and the other parrots are trying to convince her of the essential sort of rightness or, or how this this is the... And so it's it's women indoctrinating other women. Exactly, exactly. And each one takes on some some sort of philosophical, religious, political argument about why this is the best way. And in right. the end, of course, the free soul parrot breaks through her chains and flies away and urges the other ones, even though their wings are clipped, to mm-hmm. follow her. And in doing so, she's, she's yelling out to them to come follow her. But in some ways, she's also yelling out to the audience to come follow her. It's, it's got a lot of attributes of, uh, and, of the structures of what we might see in political dramas of the 1930s. It's a, mm. a little yeah. ahead of its time in that, in that way, like although that. if we read it today, the quality of it is, feels, well, how did people think this was good? But I think the, the progressiveness of what it was trying to do in its right. own historical context it was pretty incredible. And then the other one was The Woman of It, which is a satire, um, it shows an anti-suffragist meeting and just in in much more mocking ways than the parrot cage, comic ways, makes 
fun of anti-suffragists and these two new recruits they're trying to they're trying to bring into the fold. And of course, at the end, we find out the two new recruits say, "Thank you so much. We were told to come to this anti-suffragist meeting by our suffragist friends because they said it would convince us we'd want to be suffragists. You guys are great. You should do more <laughs> of this kind of work for the suffragist cause." And they leave. That's great, but it's you know it's it's uh, so these were brief one actually sketches for all intents. Very and brief, very brief, maybe ten minutes a piece, fifteen minutes a piece. And uh, I think I read that you had to do quite a bit of digging to find a lot of this material, a lot of primary sources. That there's not um, a, a large uh, amount of scholarship or history that's recorded the Gamut Club or the work that they did. Correct. So, um, so that must is that one of the reasons you sort of uh, took to writing the book? It seems like this is a sort of um, a part of, of American theater history, which isn't isn't littered with uh, you know, it's it's a really short history, so missing pieces really seem obvious to me. You know, um, it, it seems like um, it, it it would be it seems odd that these were so hard to find. Yeah. You know being so prominent in in uh, in the social movement of their day. Yes. What do you attribute that to? I attribute it to what was deemed important to record and what wasn't at the time and who was in charge of doing that recording. Yeah. Um, as has been the case with so many underrepresented groups over history, it seems like they weren't doing anything when actually we have to think about, well, who's the one in charge of recording and creating this history? Sure, who's writing it down? Exactly, yeah. exactly. And, of course, with, with groups like this, how much money was involved and how interested were they in recording what they were doing at the time? Well, I think that that's you know a very different thing about today's theatrical community is that we're we're very obsessed with especially I mean it's a different time uh, self publishing and publishing is really easy um, everybody can be a content creator but uh, you know at the time you know an effort to publish and distribute had to be part of your what was of interest to you right you know and in, and theater was uh, and is still basically about the live performance so. Um, uh, whether or not they they may have viewed the Texas blueprints exactly. for just live performance. Yes, yes, mm -hmm. absolutely. So, um, and so, uh, so the Gamut Club. How long? How long did it uh, last? And what would you say attributed to its uh, sort of uh, uh, demise? We don't know how long it lasts. It disappears into obscurity around the 1950s. What we do know is after Mary Shaw died in the late 1920s. There was a shift. There was uh, when Mary Shaw died and, and left the Gamut Club permanently. Mm -hmm. It became clear how much she was actually a driving force. So another right. writer, Essex Dean, had taken over. But there was a loss of direction. Also, remember that groups that define themselves in part or largely around the suffragist movement had to really figure out what they were about after 1920. And right, the once the Club, Yes, exactly. And the Gamut Club was no different. So one of the strategies in the 30s, the Gamut Club accepted men into their membership. Mm -hmm. And this, this, this really impacted the whole purpose for this group being created. Right, it sounds like a completely antithetical to the original vision. Exactly. And that's when we start to see less and less of them. When sure. they really disappear into obscurity. And so we don't actually know when they officially disbanded or ended. That's interesting. I, 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 uh, I do like how in, in the book you, you talk about how uh, difficult it was for the suffragist movement to sort of move beyond the sort of one issue of the vote. And which obviously is incredibly important and huge uh, historically, but there were further issues of feminism that the suffragist movement sort of didn't live to see or or weren't wasn't may have influenced. But you know, there's a, a sort of a next movement of feminists that that had to sort of take up the mantle. Right. So interesting. So, um, so the Gamut Club, uh, and then we talked a little bit in the book about uh, the Provincetown Player Playhouse. Yes. 
Um, and that's where uh, I think a lot of people have a little bit more uh, general knowledge because there's Susan Glassbell and Gene O'Neill and um, many more um, of the, the names of American theater that people you know get taught in college and are a little more familiar with their plays. Um, but you make a, a really interesting argument about, I, I think uh, throughout the book, there's this um, battle between uh, what's commercial and what isn't commercial and how when commercialism steps in, the sort of uh, sexism rears its ugly head. Right. And that right. seems to be very much uh, intrinsic to the story you're telling about the Provincetown Playhouse. Yes, yes. And part of that's about how much is a is a group's mission tied to progressive or radical ideals and how much of the reality is tied to certain political and social stasis, whether they realize it or not, and the, the interaction between those two forces. And the Provincetown Playhouse is a really good example of that. As you said, so much has been written about not just the group itself, but the members of it. And in fact, uh, a few years ago, a very good book came out, uh, written by Cheryl Black, The Women of Provincetown, just about the women of the Provincetown Players. So I was treading over territory that was well-tread. <laughs> and so in this chapter, what I'm most interested in is how this group fit into this overarching look at um, a, a, a feminist performance aesthetic that was very tied to a historical moment in time. Yeah. Uh, and they, they do in such interesting ways because they are probably the group that most explicitly was tied to progressive ideals and was their group was those ideals were most in tension or in active battle with certain elements of the status quo, which were reactionary as compared to um, the progressive feminist ideals that they had in place. And so that's what I'm looking at is is the way that played out and the way in women's playwriting we can see those tensions because the women were actually bound in relatively traditional roles when they were within this community. Yeah. Um, and so how did the plays that they wrote express those tensions, which I, they did. That was the place of complete freedom of expression was in the plays. And it provided a, a, an artistic outlet for women, not just playwrights. Many women came to the Provincetown Players, including Susan Glassbell, one of the most famous members and one of the founders, who were not specifically playwrights, but rather Susan Glassbell was a novelist and a journalist. Juna Barnes was a poet. These people came here and found the ways in which built their understanding of theater through their experience of writing right. and I, learning I, it in formal ways. I loved how you, you took this example of, of um, who was Susan Glassbell's um, uh, partner, husband? Jake Cook, George Jake. Sam Cook. Uh, and he he made he he says well I've already decided that you're going to do a play and she says I don't really know how to do that you know he says I've I've written it down it's in the program you have to go go make it happen you know there's obviously like a a their relationship was pushing forward her theatrical work as and, much as she was. And we know this story from Susan Glassbell writing about it in her biography of George Cram Cook. So regardless of how it happened, this uh -huh. is the way that Susan Glassbell has chosen to cement it in history, which right. is important in and of itself. Right. She's making a choice to yes. tell the story a certain way. Yes. So interesting. And she, um, well, I think it, it's it's interesting how you talk about how the women in the Provincetown Playhouse not only took on roles of the primary actors in terms of uh, writing, but they were in, uh, because it was a quote-unquote not professional, not commercial, they just did everything. They were um, they were directing, they were acting, they were, um, they were just, you know, uh, performing roles that were once thought of as male roles. Yes. Yes. And so, um, but, but, uh, so what caused that shift? What caused, um, there to be, uh, you know, when commercialization came along, so what, what happened? 
Well, the bigger names from the group, George Cairn Cook and Susan Glassbell had left for a period. And the bigger commercial names, in particular, Eugene O'Neill stepped to the fore to take over the management and direction of the Provincetown players. And it was three men, and uh, they had... They started pushing women out of the way, basically. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think it's 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 sort of thematic in in the book how when there becomes sort of a the professional pressure to have. Um, the profits or pay the actors or 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 get commercial success um, suddenly the uh, once progressive politics and once so progressive social atmosphere of the theater gets very quickly suppressed. Why do you think there's a relationship here, and we see it in, in uh, later, throughout the book, between a commercial, the desire for commercial success and men sort of stepping to the fore? Uh, because that was the model that was out there. Really, mm-hmm. commercial theater was run by men, uh, even regardless of who the audiences were in the theater. It was a system that was overseen and really deeply embedded with male presence. Uh-huh. Do you feel like it's a hierarchical is male, or is it, or is it just because the other people you would interact with at those top tier levels were male? Both. Mm-hmm. You know, whoever's at the top becomes who becomes imagined as the hierarchical top of the scale, and this others are trusted less. Mm-hmm. But it's also uh, experience. Women just didn't have as many opportunities to gain experience in directing, in writing that men had. Uh, again, one of the things, one of the aspects of the Provincetown players that was so powerful was they, along with the Washington Square players, really forwarded the one act as a form to be reckoned with. And mm-hmm. the one act form allowed women to experiment with drama who hadn't been formally trained. And we see this in, in so many of the situations where women are able to figure out how to gain skills. It's through these unusual roots that mm-hmm. give them access to practice, basically, to supported mm-hmm. practice of skills and development of skills, which was just not available. If we think about theater as functioning in um, in a conscious and by default apprentice system, there just wasn't that kind of inroad for women. Right, right. That's interesting. And so, uh, and Susan, yeah, Susan Glassbell, a lot of her work is. And, and what are some of the other uh, prominent uh, uh, playwrights uh, from uh, Provincetown Playhouse? From the Provincetown Playhouse. Uh, Juna Barnes is, is one of the big ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then actress Ida Rowe. Um, there's Neve Boyce, who was another one of the big playwrights, uh, also whose career was largely defined by her marriage uh-huh. uh, and I'm trying to remember my goodness. <laughs> um, um, well, yeah go ahead so uh, within yeah. that there was Mabel Dodge uh, <laughs> and who, they, these were these were women who were not just influential in the Provincetown players but also in the in the small and radical feminist movement of Greenwich Village, okay. in the heterodoxy club, which actually existed right next door to the Provincetown Playhouse, where women gathered to talk about radical ideas. So there was theatrical and political percolations happening side by side and really intersecting as, as a, just a given. Could you tell us a little bit more about the heterodoxy club? Well, it, it was probably one of the most radical feminist groups in New York at the time. And hmm. it became a support system also for the women of the Provincetown Players writing plays that were that were more questioning, both in terms of women's place in society, but also just structurally questioning of trying out new ways to think about how things might be theatrically produced. Hmm. They could count on uh, a sympathetic audience in the heterodoxy club members. 
So, so by having the sympathetic audience and having these sort of uh, intellectual cross pollination, it sort of drove and 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 uh, helped uh, to foster the uh, environment at Provincetown. Yes, absolutely. And they were doing really both radically structurally. Gina Barnes reading her plays. Um, one of the reviewers called it uh, the greatest the greatest game in town to figure out what it was she was saying because they were, <laughs> they were just densely written. Or Rita Wellman had a play Finicky Lee, Finicky La, which is about a woman who ends up allowing her baby to die because she just wasn't ready for oh. motherhood. Wow. So these are not Especially easy topics. Especially of the era. Yes, yeah. exactly. These are not easy topics to look at, but um, they were looking at them structurally, mm. content-wise. One thing I think is always really interesting about that work is that there's a, a lot of violence. There's a lot of talk of incest. And, I mean, these are, you know, they're very, uh, they seem uh, uh, to be struggling with topics that are really not easy, even for a modern audience, to sort of sit through and parse through. Yes. Yes, Absolutely. And do you feel uh, that um, that they were sort of breaking new ground in that area, or absolutely, yeah. absolutely? And do you think they had a lot of influence on on the male writers at the time, or uh, in the Provincetown players? Uh, yeah. Playoffs? I I can't imagine they didn't. I mean, mm -hmm. Susan Grasbell and George Cram Cook they co-wrote plays together, as did Neve Neve Boyce and Hutch and Tapgood. I mean, they they co-wrote works together, although the works they co-wrote were very different than the um, than the works that were written by the women alone. Huh. Um, and in what way? Uh, more traditional. <laughs> less, <laughs> less, well, less violent, um, less angry. Yeah, that's so, I mean, it just says so much that when when they were untethered from their their male partner, they they felt the freedom to be to speak more or about violence, to be more defiant in their own writing. Exactly. It's just yeah. I mean, uh, really, uh, and that just makes so much sense. I mean, writing with someone else is a social activity. You're, you're constantly sort of checking in with that person. Um, I'm sure. And when you're writing alone, you're just expressing yourself. So right. Um, so let's move on a little bit to uh, to the the neighborhood playhouse, uh, which seems to have uh, now that had a core of of uh, of women leaders and a slightly different mandate, a slightly different goal than Provincetown Playhouse. Yes. The, Tell us about the, it. The neighborhood playhouse um, emerged out of the settlement house movement, and uh, for the founders, Alice Lewison, Irene Lewison, Agnes Morgan, and Helen Arthur, um, came together to try to extend the mission of the Settlement House Movement. And the Settlement House Movement was an effort to try to help new uh, residents to America acclimate, to support them in their in their efforts to just build a life as mm -hmm. first-generation Americans. And they, they, a lot of it was about um, job skills and daily living and what we would think of in a social work uh, uh -huh. arena. Alice and Irene Lewison were interested in the artistic end of that. How mm -hmm. does art create... Um, a cultural tethering. How does art create a moment of uh, expression that goes beyond daily living skills, that allows people to have a more fully articulated cultural voice within America? Huh. And so from that, they create the Neighborhood Playhouse with uh, a business manager, Helen Arthur, and with a director, Agnes Morgan, right. um, who was also, uh, she was really a choreographer and dancer. Uh, no, I'm sorry, she was a director-writer, um, mm -hmm. Agnes Morgan. Um, and so through, through this partnership, they create this theater, the Neighborhood mm -hmm. Playhouse, which both created performances but also ran a school, and, and a theater school, and tried to figure out how to... Um, 
not just teach people how to live in America, but teach America who these people were as well. So uh, their initial productions were... um, were mainly festivals and dances and forms of performance that did not rely on expertise of English, say. Yeah, I think that was one thing that I really took away was how much it was about ritual. Um, They would speak in Jungian terms. It was about images um, and less about, let's say, with Provincetown Playhouse, the formal writing of the play. Um, It seemed to really inform their work. And you you, you attributed that maybe to the fact that uh, not only their own personal interests, but also that it, it, it freed people up from not having to struggle with the language. Yes, yes. And it became an experiment playground for these four women who were creating forms of performance. Of course, what helped this along is Irene and Alice Lewison were incredibly wealthy and Uh traveled around the world seeking out different art forms. So they were able to bring Eastern influences into their performance. So interesting. It reminds me of Julie Taymor. Yeah. Sounds like Julie Taymor. We could definitely talk about more uh, when we talk about the directresses on Broadway. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's, it, there's a you know that sort of the freedom to collect and uh, you know uh, to have unique experiences because of your wealth. It can really inform good artwork. I mean, just because you are high class uh, and you have that sort of privilege um, doesn't necessarily it, it may afford you some things that other people you know. Uh, will be grateful for in a way. Yes. Um, so do you feel like their uh, their mandate was less overtly uh, feminist? Or, and more, uh, so it, how do you uh, sort of fold them into the continuum of the book? Well, their, their mandate was not feminist per se, but here you have four women who are trying to, to somehow fold in the experiences of um, underrepresented groups or underheard groups mm-hmm. into artistic expression and some kind of artistic expression that reflected that structurally. So you're creating forms of performance, and it's led by women, and oftentimes it's starred one of the founders. Um, and so, first of all, you get productions. If you, if you want to create a production that has a big cast and stars you, well, it's got to have a female leading role. Uh-huh. Uh, Alice and Irene Lewison were very interested in religion. They were... Um, they were both Jewish and were interested in the ways in which they were interested in, A, the, the Jewish immigrant population in New York, and also how biblical texts formed um, the basis of the way people understood the world. So they would perform they would perform um, texts, but they would reposition women as the central characters instead of the men. They were fascinated by the way women's lives were dictated in religion by an incredible, narrow, subservient dictate of what they were and weren't allowed to do. So they tried to use performance to address this. So while they weren't about suffragist causes, although we we do have records that funds were given to suffragist causes, but that wasn't what they publicly claimed themselves as, the productions they created tended to be more female-centered, either through the text itself or just through attribution of the leadership of the text. Uh, just meaning that the people who were building these texts and, and bringing exactly. them to fruition were t- tended to be women. Right, and that's the way they were read by reviewers as female-led productions. So yeah, even one thing though, I think yeah. is really interesting in, in the book is how you, uh, you you often talk about how um, the the press would treat something as feminist regardless of the the goals of the women who were creating the work. Right. Yes. Simply because they were. And maybe there's truth in that. Maybe there's a, 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 an overtly feminist act, especially in that era. But um, maybe they wouldn't have defined themselves that way. Well, it, reviewers ended up being, especially traditional reviewers or traditionalists, and certainly um, people who are not 
big sympathizers of the cause, ended up being very progressive. And mm. only in that, they, the nervousness or the inability to figure out how to deal with female-led productions got them to write about it a lot. Like, what's going on over here? Right, or and wrestling a, with it. A, and in that wrestling, they actually began to broaden, um, as a historian, they broadened my understanding of how we might understand what a feminist work looks like. But mm. at the time, they ended up publicizing the feminist aspects of work when that might not have been the goal of the artists themselves. So you might get a title of an article called Feminist Beware. Uh This is coming down the pike. You're probably going to want to see it as, as either a serious comment or a mocking comment. But just doing that and labeling it as feminist automatically created a lens and created a label for it that then couldn't be unlabeled. Right, right. Once it sort of got built into the fabric of the way the public was dealing with it or the way the critical press was dealing with it, it just was in that category. Exactly. So, and that, and it sort of serves a useful function in, um, I mean, uh, any artist is presenting work to be uh, responded to. So even if your uh, initial, you know, even if the impetus behind the work is I want to present this religious text with uh, these uh, people of a different culture, um, regardless, if there is some feminist overtone there, maybe that's useful for the public dialogue. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, now, would you say that that um, it, being of the era that they were always wholly successful in in handling cultures that weren't American culture, or did sometimes that would? Uh, well, according to them, them, according to them, I'm sure they were very, very successful. Looking at it critically from a distance, we see four white women at the helm trying to figure out how to how to how to um, how to literally direct immigrant populations into specific identities. Yeah. So no matter what, when we start talking about that, xenophobia becomes right. a term that we have to consider. And this was no different. How much of an effort was made to really figure out what cultures they were dealing with? How much of an effort was made to raise those who were from the who were first generation, who were immigrants, into the leadership of the project? And we don't have records of that happening. Mm-hmm. Okay. That, well, and you know that seems like a, a almost a, a natural pitfall of the era. Yes. You know, not to excuse it, but it seems like um, uh, almost, you know, since they're early in uh, American culture wrestling with that issue at all, um, making mistakes along the path might just be par par for the course. Exactly. Mixed metaphors. Um, So uh, now this... Uh, this institution also uh, kind of fell prey to the commercial trap. Exactly, yes. Mm-hmm. And, and so how did that unfold? Well, the, the neighborhood playhouse, they had, they had had some experience with moving productions from their Lower East Side location to Broadway, and they uh-huh. never worked out very well. But um, towards the end of their existence as an amateur group, They had thought that the only way to make themselves financially viable was to create a professional company that was not based out of um, first-generation Americans, but rather was a company comprised of professional actors. And while the productions that they did at the Lower East Side when they were just amateur were incredibly well received, critically and audience-wise, very, very, very well received, whenever they moved into the commercial arena, it was clear that their productions needed to be seen within the context of what they were doing and the place they were doing it. So when they turned to professional actors trying to figure out how to professionalize their theater, and they kept the school. That was their nod towards not excluding um, not excluding their constituency completely. But they 
did exclude them from the professional theater company. Huh. Uh, it just didn't work, and it wasn't that long after until they finally had to just shut down completely, keeping their school open again, but shutting down their theater. Right. Uh, what One of the things that I think is really telling uh, about the way that, that you've written uh, the book is that in in this sort of final section of the book, you, you discuss um, the sort of professional directing class of women who are overtly doing commercial work, even though prior uh, sort of attempts at, at, at doing uh, uh, feminist and suffragist work were sort of sabotaged by commercial uh, yeah. impulses. Right. And, and then in these final uh, few uh, women that you discuss, they're... Uh, you know, obviously performing a really uh, political act almost um, by accident as they work their way through um, the sort of commercial sphere overtly. Yes. Well, this chapter is, for me, um, probably the heart of the book in that it looks at something where... Theater intersects with public life and makes public life into theater. Right. Uh, it, because these women who directed were interested in staying below the radar in many ways. They just wanted to do their work, and being a woman, it was important to stay below the radar. They, they, there was not an attempt to bring attention to themselves, but that was not an option. Uh-huh. Attention came to them in such interesting and unusual and quirky ways Um, because as women directing there was just no place in an American understanding of theater for that to happen not in the ultimate commercial space of Broadway and so these women just by doing the work they had the performances they were doing on stage and some were more feminist than others or Uh some were more women centered than others although Rachel Crothers whose work was probably the most woman centered in terms of looking at women's issues was very clear that she didn't want to be called a suffragist right right uh, she literally sort of rejected the moniker Exactly. But here she was, a woman, not married, without kids, leading a production that she'd written, men and women following her, it being commercially successful. Well, how are we defining what the feminist movement says women are capable of? We have it in Rachel Crothers. So, of course, she has right. no choice but to be moved into that space. By right. she's, a, she's a success story, a great example of it, even if she doesn't want to, you know, live in the label. Do you feel like she may maybe rejected the label for in, in term to pro- protect her commercial success, or do you think it's you know her own personal philosophy? She just sort of didn't uh, sort of believe in the in the uh, ide- ideology. That's a good question. Her plays certainly seem in line with a feminist ideology, although not necessarily a specific feminist uh, suffragist ideology. Mm-hmm. She doesn't talk about that directly, but she really does unearth and uncover a lot of the double standards and traps that women are caught in just by being women. Yeah. So I'm not sure how to answer that question, except sure. to say that she definitely used her plays as a way to think about issues that were specific to women and not issues that were um, specific as in how do I get a husband in the traditional melodramatic sense. They were specific to women like uh, double standards about uh, why what happens to the woman who's assumed to uh, have a child out of wedlock versus men. Mm-hmm. And while her plays all end with uh, a somewhat morally airtight message, the, the path to get there really forces some serious, serious cultural and gendered self-reflection on the part of um, the larger audience about our expectations and demands of women. Which is it's so, um, you know,
know, we, we have this sort of feeling that issue plays are anti-commercial in some way. But it's she was commercially successful. Very. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it sounds like she was able to sort of thread that needle between um, finding uh, ways to make the audience sort of uh, confront issues, but also satisfy them, entertain them, send them home happy, so to speak. Without feeling like they've been preached to. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that, um, those were specific descriptions that were given to her. Not oh, really? Preachy. Huh. Um, and so, and and now, would you say that's uh, uh, true of the other uh, directresses, as you uh, call them, in the uh, in the that you highlight in the book? Not necessarily. Edith Ellis um, was, in a, to a lesser extent, interested in those same topics, or at least was able to express that interest theatrically. Um, although Edith Ellis was more of a suffragist outwardly. Uh, although again, she wanted to make sure it was clear that she wasn't for all women voting only for certain ones. Uh, Minnie Madden Fisk, she was inter- she was an actress who became a director, um, right. and her road to fame was that she refused to be caught up in something called the syndicate, which was a group of men who who tried to control the entire theater industry by. I just found that so. I just sounded like it should be an HBO series. I'm sure it will be at some point. You know, Fisk versus the theater syndicate, but they just sound like guys twirling their mustaches. It was pretty, pretty yes, great. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Fascinating. And so she had these dual interests of, of having plays that were good, and she, as an actress, she wanted female roles that were substantial. Uh-huh. Right. So even just even though she was playing in, in Ibsen and Shaw, if she didn't write them, she's still looking for roles that are needy and thus bringing those kind of characters to the fore and then in her fight against the syndicate was forced or not forced but found herself in a position of being a spokesperson for for theatrical freedom Mm. and so if, if we think about the time period she became the most vocal um political female political figure although her cause was theater but she was speaking everywhere and she yeah. was quoted everywhere and here we have these four um we have this group of men who are in battle with this one woman this actress who right. because of her circumstances had to buy a theater and had to do more of her own work and became much more autonomous in her theatrical practice because she couldn't rely on commercial theaters because they were controlled by the syndicate right and and just by behaving this way just by standing up for herself speaking out against uh, not something male but something that was in, in her mind maybe labor related you know right. um, just behaving in her own interests um, you know that's a it's a performance so to speak of of something that women were not expected to do uh, it, it challenged normative uh, female behavior just on its own correct yeah just fascinating yes. fascinating stuff um, so uh, what do you want to, you know what's your goal with with this book as a whole I mean what what is it that you you hope that readers will take away uh, from or will will be what what do you hope the study sort of adds to the public discourse I'm hoping that it adds to the understanding of the kind of voltage that was present in women staging themselves in different ways Mm. Uh, and the ways in which at this time period, because I'm looking at the period leading up to women gaining the vote, it, it's an even more heightened awareness of this, where they're stepping into a negative space. They're stepping into a space that does not allow for a female political voice. And theater is the way, performance and performativity is the way in which they can find entrance or the mm-hmm. ways in which they can have impact. So that's what I want to show is the different ways that happen. And I look at it a Along a continuum of the most obvious efforts to create um, a female political voice to the least obvious efforts to create a political voice, but regardless that a political voice was being created, it was being created through the medium 
of theater. Mm-hmm. So my goal in writing this was to think about what a feminist political aesthetic was for this time. What did a feminist theatrical aesthetic look like? Um, and that it's not solely about intention, but that the role of performance itself is always, always, always interacting with its social world, just like the social world is always interacting with performance. That's uh, fantastic. Um, you know, it did make me think about. I mean, uh, just before we uh, before we uh, let people know how they can uh, get a copy of the book. You know, when I was reading through it, there's this uh, one of the most famous and successful theater directors now is undergoing a, a sort of a public crucible, and you know, it, it, as a as a woman director on Broadway. And it, this book definitely made me think of, of Julie Taymor going through this sort of ultra-commercial work that she's doing in reflection to the, her sort of, you know, centuries-old forebears, so to speak, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, have you been following that at all? Do you, do you find, do you see sort of echoes of what she's going through and, and what they went through? Or? I haven't studied the, Julie Taymor's, I mean, obviously I've heard, it, I've heard her, incredible difficulties as of late um, with the flying superhero. Sure, sure. But uh, it's important to note that in, in looking at Julie Tamar, there's both this sense of her representing women directors or does she represent women directors and the sense of the presence of women directors and it's still, if we look at Broadway, if we look in general, less so as we go more out towards regional. Women in commercial theater are still vastly, vastly underrepresented. Women playwrights are still vastly, vastly underrepresented. Women playwrights are coming to the fore more only because as of a few years ago they were organizing a conference which took place uh, about how women playwrights are not getting produced. So it's... If we look at the numbers, and I haven't looked at them this year, but if we look at the numbers in the 1920s uh, of how many women were directing on Broadway, when I'm writing about this really volatile time for women, and look at them now, I, I think that it would be rather depressing. <laughs> well, I, I would say that, you know, the, the numbers, I would say the prominence of, of women artists in theater now are, is, is, is growing a bit. I mean, obviously, Julie Taymor may be going through a difficult time, but she's obviously extremely prominent and universally acknowledged as incredibly talented and an important artist. Absolutely. And, as is Susan Stroman. There's Andrew Stroman. Absolutely. And also a lot of, of of the most heralded new writers, even if they're not hitting Broadway in the numbers they should, um, you know, Sarah Rule, um, Susan Laurie Parks, you know, there's a lot of very strong, important female writers out there, but they're still outnumbered by vast amounts of, uh, of, of the number of men who are prominently displayed in commercial theater. Um, and and as we get closer to the commercial epicenter, the balance of women to men, the differential, it gets more and more acute. Yes, absolutely. I think that's absolutely true, and that's why I, I really found the book valuable because it, it, it. We all know that, and we understand that it's um, that it's an issue. But putting it in the context of, you know, things that happened in the early 1900s, and how much has changed, and how much things have not changed, I think is is just really valuable to contemporary readers, especially people who are interested in theater and how to how to. Uh, bridge those gaps and and, uh, and make those changes gives them a little more meat um, so I, I really I, it's an absolutely fantastic book uh, please uh, could you know, my pleasure and thank you for speaking to me can, um, can you uh, let people know how they can get a copy of the book yes certainly I would love to actually uh, <laughs> the book is actually easy to get um, mm-hmm. it's available on the Barnes and Noble website www.barnesandnoble.com it's sure. available at Amazon, um, Amazon.com. You can uh-huh. also purchase it at University of Delaware Press, which has right. a somewhat odder website address, which is www.lib.udel.uedu.udpress. And I will so, put that up on the website as well, on the blog. Yes. 
But so Barnes and Noble and Amazon.com are very direct, and uh, Barnes and Noble does a great job of figuring out how to how to sell their products for the best possible price. I will just put that in there. Well, great. And uh, you know, when I I found the book uh, uh, displayed out at the Drama Bookshop. So if you are a New York City listener, um, you can find it at the Drama Bookshop. Oh uh, yes, they were wonderful. We had a great event there last March, actually, for really? the book. It was it was really fabulous. The drama bookstore organized a wonderful, wonderful event. Yeah, they're 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 great. They're a real gem. Um, thank you so much for speaking with me. I certainly hope uh, people find the book. Uh, it's been really informative and a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Bye bye. Bye bye. That was the New Books in Theater podcast. We'll be back with you next week. Uh, hope to see you then. Thanks for listening. <laughs>